0: Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. As we continue our expository series on Sunday evenings in the book of Colossians, we are ready for that verse and one other that we will plan to cover tonight, verse 17, which reads, and whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. As we begin this study, we are reminded of the great misunderstanding that exists in the religious world tonight about the Spirit's indwelling of Christian hearts. And we've talked about it in in times past, in other Lessons, but as we come to this particular section of Colossians, it's a good opportunity for us to spend time reminding ourselves of the importance of understanding the uh, indwelling uh, of the Spirit, the influence of the Spirit, and staying away from uh, a position that would be in violation of God's will and would lead us in a direction uh, which we should not go. And to conclusions. That we should not reach when it comes to how the Spirit, uh, the Holy Spirit of God, influences uh, the child of God. The truth is that there are uh, no less than eight designations in the New Testament that describe a single condition, and that condition is salvation. Notice some things with me here. First of all, the Bible teaches that Christians are in God, and that God is in Christians. If uh, you take time to uh, look at some passages like 1 Corinthians chapter 3, this is a statement that Paul makes concerning the church as a whole, not the the individual Christian, but of course the church is comprised of individual Christians. And there he says, do you not know that you are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God uh, dwells in you? When we turn over a few chapters to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 at verse 19, there the individual is under consideration, not the congregation as a whole. In 1 Corinthians 3.16 we just read, but in verse 19 of chapter 6, it is this, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? Then when we turn over to 1 John chapter 4, uh, beginning at verse 11, we see another statement that reminds us that uh, that Christians are in God and that God is in uh, Christians. In uh, 1 John 4, uh, beginning at verse uh, 11, uh, and incidentally, those other verses, you are the temple of God the, and the Spirit, both of them mentioned there. But in 1 John chapter uh, 4, Beginning at verse 11, Paul uh, John writes, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love has been perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in Him, and He in us, because He has given us of His Spirit. Again, the Spirit mentioned in connection with God. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, notice this, God abides in him and he in God. And we have known and believed that the love that God has for us, God is love and he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. Then when you look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 1, there in that text it is said that the entire church at Thessalonica was in God that's a part of Paul's greeting to the church at Thessalonica those who are in God notice how he uh, how he puts it there paul silvanus and timothy to the church of the thessalonians in god the father and the lord jesus christ so the bible teaches that christians are in God and that god is in Christians. But the Bible also teaches that Christians are in Christ. And that Christ is in Christians. Second Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17. What is taught there? If any man is in Christ, in Christ, there it is, in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away, behold, all things, old things have passed away, behold, all things have become. Knew. Then the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 2 and uh, verse 20, remember said that there he wrote in verse 20 of that epistle, he wrote that I, uh, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Then in the Ephesian Epistle, chapter 3 and verse 17, there the Apostle Paul, his desire for those Christians at Ephesus and thus for all Christians is that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you being rooted and grounded in love, etc., etc. So Christians are in Christ and Christ is in Christians. Christians are in God, God is in Christians. That brings us to the Spirit. The Spirit is in Christians, and Christians are in the Spirit. Uh, one of the passages we looked at a moment ago, going back to First Corinthians uh, chapter uh, six, and verse nineteen. Uh, the body uh, is the temple of the Holy Spirit, who is uh, in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own. He goes on, verse twenty, therefore you are you are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit which are God's. In the Roman letter, Romans chapter 8 and verse uh, 11, But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And the admonition in Galatians chapter 5 in Paul's epistle there at verse 16 is to walk in the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit. And so we are in the Spirit, we're to walk in the Spirit. I say then, walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So these passages that we have looked at show us that the Christian is in God and God is in the Christian. The Christian is in Christ and Christ is in the Christian. The Spirit is in Christians. Those uh, verses clearly tell us that the Spirit is in Christians, and Christians are in the Spirit. They worship in the Spirit, that is they worship uh, as a result of that relationship according to the teaching of the Spirit, and they walk in the Spirit. But notice also that Christians are commanded to what? Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Philippians 2 and verse 5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And in 1 Corinthians 2, 16, The Apostle Paul declared that he had the mind of Christ. But, back to our text in Colossians 3.16, the church for all ages is commanded to what? Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Therefore, the mind of Christ dwells in Christians and the word of Christ dwells in Christians. The mind of Christ and the word of Christ. So... As we uh, summarize, Christians are in God, God is in Christians, Christians are in Christ, Christ is in Christians, the Spirit is in Christians, and Christians are in the Spirit, and the mind of Christ and the Word of Christ are in the Christian. All these expressions we find in Scripture are used interchangeably, and they denote one condition, salvation, the saved condition. The saved condition. Those who were saved are described as those who are in God. God is in them. Those who are saved are des- are described as being in Christ, and Christ is in them. Those who were saved are described as being in the Spirit, and the Spirit is in them. Those who were saved are those who have the mind of Christ, and the word of Christ. All these expressions are used interchangeably, and they denote the saved Condition, So, therefore, the Word in the Christian is really the same as the Spirit in the Christian. The Word is the same as the Spirit. But, someone says, but the Spirit is a living being. The Spirit is a living being. Well, think about this passage in Hebrews 4 and verse 12. For the Word of God is living, the what? The Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. The Bible affirms that, that the Spirit, or that the Word of God, rather, is living and active, living and active. You know, as I think about all of these things, and I think about the Spirit in the Christian, God in the Christian, Christ in the Christian, having the mind of Christ, letting the Word of Christ, is there one medium, is there one medium through which all of that could be accomplished logically and scripturally? And do we have any indication in Scripture that there is one medium through which all of that is accomplished? I believe we do, and that is the Word. One key text is that passage we looked at in Ephesians 3.17. To the end that Christ may dwell in your hearts through what? Faith. Romans 10.17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete thoroughly equipped for every good work. You see, when you look at those passages, does it not lead you to the conclusion that if indeed the Word of God is all-sufficient and all-powerful, and it is, according to Scripture, that Christ dwells in our hearts through faith and that faith comes by hearing the Word of God, that that one medium through which God dwells, Christ dwells, the Spirit dwells, the Word dwells through which you have the mind of Christ, that which enables you to have the mind of Christ, all of that leads us to the medium of the Word. And I believe that is strongly reinforced when we put with Colossians 3.16, the passage we're emphasizing now. A parallel passage in Ephesians 5, 18, and 19. And I believe that brings it all home very beautifully to tell us that it is the all-powerful, living, and active, sharper-than-any-two-edged sword word of God through which all of this is accomplished. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Now read Ephesians 5, 18 and 19. And do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Look at those two passages and see how parallel they are. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, be filled with the Spirit, teaching and admonishing one another, speaking to one another, the Ephesians passage says in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord, Colossians 3.16, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, Ephesians 5.19. Could they be any more closely connected than they are in terms of what they are Teaching, Paul in the Ephesian epistle is teaching the church at Ephesus and thus the church for all time exactly what he is conveying to the church at Colossae and thus to the church of all uh, time. But he simply uses different wording to teach the very same thing. To let the word of Christ dwell in you richly is to be filled with the Spirit. How is it that I am to be filled with the Spirit? By letting the word of Christ dwell in me richly. When you put together all of the evidence that I believe is so overwhelming, you can come away with no other conclusion than the conclusion that the all-powerful Word of God is the medium through which God, Christ, and the Spirit dwell in the heart of the child of God. And by dwell, by dwell we mean influence, because dwell is really an accommodative expression which indicates The influence that is exerted upon the child of God. The Word of Christ dwells in us. The Spirit influences us through that indwelling Word. And when we understand and appreciate that the Spirit is the great revelator, He is the one through whom, the member of the Godhead through whom the Word was given, it was given by the Spirit. Then when that word abides in us, then it can be said that the Spirit abides in us through that word and only through that word. And why would I need anything more than the influence of the Spirit through the living and active word of God, which affirms for itself all power and all sufficiency. It says it has that power. Paul wrote it in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. And so I believe that when we look at Colossians 3, 16 and especially compare it to verses 18 and 19 of Ephesians 5, we see a direct parallel in the teaching with a variation in the wording which gives us clear insight into the manner in which the Holy Spirit influences the child of God today. They are parallel. But what about what about Colossians three sixteen and its bearing on the use of instrumental music in Christian worship? We certainly don't need to pass by this verse without addressing that, and we have addressed that subject in, in other lessons, of course, uh, but it does have a bearing on the use of instrumental music in Christian worship, and so does the parallel passage that we still have on the screen here with it ephesians five eighteen and nineteen. Sing is what is admonished here. Singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord, the Colossians passage, the Ephesian passage, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. But historically, historically, there is no mechanical instrument of music used in Christian worship until the 7th century, despite the fact that mechanical instruments had been in existence for Centuries. The New Testament is silent, completely on the use of the instrument. They were left out by Christ. They were not authorized by the apostles. No New New Testament church ever used them. They were the later edition of man, as we said, around the 7th century A.D. But what was historically done is not the basis for what we do, is it? Although certainly that lends credence to uh, what we are affirming. But sing is a special kind of music, and because it is a special kind of music, because it is a specific kind of music, then all other kinds of music are eliminated. It's just that simple, or should be that simple. But when we look at the word in the Ephesian passage, and we've talked about this word before, we look at the word that is translated making melody in the English, but in the original it is the word "solo." transliterated P-S-A-L-L-O. When you look at the Ephesian passage, the phrase making melody comes from that word psalo. What about that word? It has been used to try to uh, affirm that the instrument of music, mechanical instrument of music, can be used in worship. Why? Because the word indicates to, uh, to cause to vibrate by touching, to pluck the strings of an instrument, Uh, To pluck or to pull out, but the basic word means uh, to pluck or to pull. And yes, there was a time when to pluck or to twang the strings of an instrument were involved. But by New Testament time, it had, according to Thayer's Greek lexicon, simply come to mean to sing a hymn in praise to God. And that's all that it means. But think about it. Plucking or twanging as in plucking the strings of an instrument. What do we have in Ephesians 5.19? What do we have? Singing and making melody. There's that word solo, making melody. Singing and plucking the strings, let's say, in your what? Heart. So what is the instrument that is specified in Ephesians 5.19? We've talked about it before. The instrument is specified. What is it that we're to pluck or twine? The heartstrings, as it were. In other words, it is to be heartfelt, praise to God, in song. And the instrument is actually specified in the verse itself. So if one contends that an instrument is included in Ephesians 5.19, I wouldn't argue. The instrument is not included in the, in the meaning of the word solo. No, no, indeed. But it is simply to pluck or twine. But then the instrument is mentioned, the heart. Nothing more, nothing less. Couple that with the historical evidence and with the specificity of the command itself, which cannot be ignored, and you have absolutely no authorization and, in fact, condemnation for including the instrument of music in worship. It is unauthorized. And it is against God's will. You know, if playing instruments of music is an acceptable part of divine worship, it's very difficult to understand why it would not have been mentioned, not have been stated in either this passage in Colossians or the parallel text in Ephesians 5 or in any other text. You know, in Colossians 3.16, it says sing. But what if in Ephesians five eighteen and nineteen, even though the passages are very closely related, what if Paul had added singing, playing, singing and playing? What if he had added the word playing and made it clear it was a mechanical instrument of music? Then I could not, I could not say that Colossians three sixteen authorizes singing and nothing else. I couldn't say that the Bible authorizes singing and nothing more. In other words, if If I had another passage anywhere that added, gave me more information that allowed the instrument, then I couldn't say, well, Colossians 3.16 says sing. Oh, I know Ephesians 5.18 and 19 says and play, but I'm going to go with Colossians 3. No, that wouldn't be good hermeneutics. That wouldn't be good Bible interpretation. The point is singing is authorized in every single passage in the New Testament and nothing else is authorized. All else is excluded. Why... Would we not, if the instrument of music is acceptable, find it in some passage somewhere in the New Testament? Well, someone says, well, we do find it in the Old Testament. That's right, we do. And that adds even more weight to the argument against it in Christian worship. Why? Because if I find it in the Old and it is conspicuously absent from the New, And that the command in the new is sing and nothing more and nothing less. That tells me everything I need to know about what God allowed under the old covenant that he disallows under the new. David introduced the instrument and yes, it was used in a system which is in stark contrast to the inward, simple, spiritual outpouring of the heart under the New Covenant, and the contrast between the Old and the New Covenant is clearly seen in the book of Hebrews, and yes, maybe God did allow it under the Old Covenant because it, as David introduced it, seemed to fit with the uh, ceremonies and and everything a part of that Old Covenant, a type of that which is the substance now, even if one looked at it from that perspective, one would have to say that, well, if the instrument was allowed under the Old, but it's not seen in the New Covenant, why is it not there? Why is it not there? There's an obvious shift in the nature of the Old Covenant to the nature of the New. And in the nature of that New Covenant, instrumental music is as foreign to the new covenant as anything one could possibly imagine and it is not there. Think about the purpose for singing as it's stated right here in these passages we're looking at. Think about the purpose for singing and it'll tell you a great deal about the introduction of mechanical instruments. What is singing designed to do? Singing is one means of getting the word of Christ Into the hearts of hearers, isn't it? Singing is one means of getting the word of Christ into the hearts of hearers. Listen to it. Teaching and admonishing one another. In what? In psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Ephesians. The Ephesians passage. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Speaking to one another to do what? To teach and to admonish. In other words, by speaking in songs, we are to teach and admonish one another. You tell me that instrumental accompaniment aids us in carrying out the purpose that is clearly expressed in these two passages. There is nothing about mechanical instruments of music in worship that aids the teaching of of the word of God, and getting that word of God into the hearts of the hearers. It hinders rather than helps. Because if I'm to teach and admonish you, and you are to teach and admonish me as we sing, the instrument interferes with that. Because the words, in order to do the job of teaching and admonishing, must be heard distinctly. They must be understood. Tell me how the instrument aids in that. It becomes a hindrance. And if it aids at all, it is in the execution of a musical performance. And that in itself is a grave danger because then the service becomes entertainment rather than service to God and rather than teaching one another. And tell me that that's not where we are in the world tonight in which we find ourselves where it's not just a piano anymore, as if that were right, it's not, but it's gone well beyond that. And it's full-scale orchestras now, pretty much. And so the very, the very thing that the instrument would logically lead to has occurred. It is a reality. It is a reality in the religious world. Tonight, So when some call it an aid, it is not aiding at all in the song service as God intended it. It becomes a hindrance. An aid is less conspicuous and important than the thing that is being aided. And the mechanical instrument occupies the leading and not the secondary part in terms of its time and its sound in the service where it is used. Now, to all of this, we simply add the second verse as we close tonight, and it's tied very closely to Colossians 3.16. It's the very next stroke of the pen, as it were, from the Apostle Paul. And whatever you do in word and or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever you do, in what? In word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. What does it mean to do something in his name? We've talked about it many times. It means to do it by his authority, doesn't it? Stop in the name of the law, that old expression. Stop in the name of the law means stop by the authority invested in me as an officer of the law. If I'm an officer of the law, that's what I'm saying. Stop in the name of the law, by the authority given to me by the law of the land. And if we're going to include mechanical instruments of music in worship to God, we've got to be able to do it in the name of the Lord Jesus. That is, by his authority. Where can you find authority in scripture from the Lord for the inclusion of mechanical instruments? You cannot find it. And since you find only singing specifically authorized, and that is a specific type of music, all other music is is excluded. We've said before, singing is a specific command. Playing is a specific command. Making music is a generic command. Had Colossians 3.16 and Ephesians 5.18 and 19 and every other New Testament passage regarding music and worship said simply make music to the Lord in worship. That would have been generic. But the God of heaven did not choose a generic term. The Holy Spirit used a specific type of, of music, singing. And Paul reminds us in the verse that follows that verse that mentions that specific type of singing. On the very heels of that verse, he says, And whatever you do, including your singing and everything else, whether it's in word or in deed, you must have the authority of the Lord Jesus in order to do it. Therefore, if I do not have that authority, then I dare not, I dare not practice anything for which I cannot find that authority. In Matthew 28, 18, Jesus came to them, the apostles, and spoken to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The American standard says, Into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Into the name of, same usage as in, Colossians 3.17, into the authority of. Baptize them into that relationship where they are under the authority of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, where is that authority found? How do I know where that authority is? Where is that authority? What is that authority? It is the last will and testament of Jesus Christ. Therefore, whatever I do in word or deed, I must find authority for it in this, the written word. Because John twelve forty eight reminds me as Jesus spoke these words, He who rejects me and does not receive my word has that which judges him. The words that I have spoken, the same will judge him in the last day. Jesus said, the word that I have spoken will judge you in the last day. This is that word. And in this word... I am commanded to sing and make melody with the heart, nothing more, nothing less. And so, as we apply these words specifically to our worship in song tonight, we don't limit it to that, obviously. It is expanded to include everything we do, as Paul says in this final t- verse we look at tonight. Everything we do in word or deed must be have the authority of the New Testament. And that includes the plan of salvation, doesn't it? That's why I can know tonight the very thing that you must do if you haven't already done it in order to be baptized into or to come into that relationship under the authority of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. It is baptism, it is baptism that places you under that authority. It is baptism that puts you into that relationship where your Lord is the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You don't come into that relationship by praying a prayer. You don't come into that relationship by simply asking Jesus to come into your heart, as tragically so much of the world contends tonight. Because I must have authority for the plan of salvation, just as I must have authority for everything, obviously. And the only plan of salvation which is authorized in this book says this. Believe with all of your heart that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. John 8, 24. Repent of your sins. Luke 13, 3. Confess Jesus to be the Christ. Matthew 10, 32. And be buried in baptism for the forgiveness of sins. Mark 16, 16. That's what God, through His Word, through His Son, Has authorized. And then, as you have complied with those terms of obedience and have been added to the church, the kingdom of God, then from that day forward, as you obeyed his word in becoming his child, you continue in word or deed to do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, always giving thanks to God because of the wonderful blessings that you now have in Jesus Christ. If you're not in Christ tonight, we plead with you to obey the gospel as we've just outlined it in the only plan that can place you into that covenant relationship and submitting to the authority of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. If you need to come home to your first love because you have left that authority, because you have left this pattern, We plead with you to come home if that's your need. As we stand to sing, will you come?